The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for August 20th, 2022. Kenya recently held its presidential election, with William Ruto, deputy president of Kenya, being declared the president-elect with 50.49% of the vote at the beginning of the week. However, there has been significant tension since the announcement, and Ruto's opponent said he will challenge the results of the election, which has been marred by accusations of vote rigging. Given this uncertainty in Kenya, a Western ally and the region's largest economy, I picked an episode from the Lawfare Archive from March 19, 2019, in which David Priest sat down with Judd Devermont to discuss the electoral landscape in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 19th, 2019. Demographic, technological, and geostrategic developments are disrupting the electoral landscape in sub-Saharan Africa. How do these shifts affect the political climate for democracy and participation across Africa? What have recent elections in Nigeria illustrated about these? And what about the clash between China and the U.S. in Africa? We spoke with Judd Devermont, director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, host of the Into Africa podcast, and former National Intelligence Officer for Africa from 2015 to 2018. He's spent a lot of time on the continent, including a recent visit, to get firsthand information and insight about the Nigerian elections and their aftermath. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 401, African Elections and U.S. Interests. Judd, welcome. Before we get into the substance of what's changing and what's not changing in Sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to elections and U.S. interests, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Why did you get hooked on the continent and its politics? And how did you pursue that interest in your academic work, your government work, and now in the think tank world? Thanks, David. Well, I have always been a fanatic about history. And I took every class I could possibly take. And when I got to grad school, um, all of a sudden the world opened up to me. I didn't just have to take American and European history. And so I started you know, taking East Asian history and the history of American labor and Russian history and um, none of those are Africa. None of those are Africa. But I started getting interested in doing a study abroad. And I remember one day I ditched class, which I rarely do. And I walked to a kiosk where they had all of the study abroads and two countries jumped out at me, 
South Africa and Ghana. And it was it was like I just knew that it was right. And I started taking all the classes I could possibly take. I went to go live in South Africa. I studied Zulu. Please don't ask me to say anything in Zulu. Um, and I just found it to be a continent, first of all, with incredible people, um, with a deep, rich history. And I knew that I could never be an expert on Africa. I could always just try and I could always just learn. And so um, that took me to trying to find a place where I could leverage that history and that knowledge and, and help decision makers make uh, more informed decisions. And that's how I sort of stumbled into a career in government. Mm -hmm. And you were studying Africa from, from different perspectives, but all across Africa. You didn't limit yourself just to South Africa or Ghana. No, I mean, I, I my specialization had been in college, at least in South Africa. Um, my uh, really geeky a paper for in grad school was racial identities on the South African sugar belt, looking at indentured Indian labor uh, in the nineteenth uh, and twentieth century. So you know, really, really riveting, riveting subject matter. Very specific, probably good to soak in that to get the background to what was going on now, but not exactly relevant to policymakers today. No, I'm not, I haven't got any questions about that in my career. <laughs> uh, but I applied to work at the State Department mm -hmm. and. Uh, they assigned me West Africa because I had all this experience in South Africa, as they do. And uh, I show up at work. It's 9-11. That's my first day at the job. Wow. And um, while, like everyone, tragic, and I was you know, horrified by all that, but I have to admit, David, I was kind of honored, uh, the privilege of being in government in that moment and seeing how this cataclysmic event was going to shape our relations with Sub-Saharan Africa and particularly West Africa. And so... I got really deep on West Africa. I ended up moving to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, working at the embassy there in Abidjan. And uh, then I started looking at jobs at the CIA mm -hmm. and was hired there and became uh, initially their West Africa analyst, specifically working in Nigeria. Right. And eventually you became the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and did that for quite some time. What does a National Intelligence Officer do? It's the best job in government, hands down. My job was threefold. I represented uh, the 17 intelligence agencies at all policy meetings. So it was my job at the beginning of any policy meeting to lay down uh, what the state of play is so that policymakers would have a shared view of the analytical questions. Uh, they would have an objective, unbiased, um, dispassionate understanding of what was happening, and they would make decisions. So that was job one. Job two is to oversee strategic intelligence for the 17 intelligence agencies. So CIA might have a paper and DIA might have a paper, but if it was going to represent the entire collective view of the intelligence community, that was under my shop. And we produced things like national intelligence estimates and, and other products. You recently wrote an insightful report that people can see, unlike the national intelligence estimates, which are classified, about African elections and U.S. interests for the Center for Strategic and International Studies where you work now. I'll recommend that report to all of our listeners called The Game Has Changed. One of the clear takeaways for me from your report, and I presume from your recent travel in Africa, is that demographic, technological, and geostrategic developments are disrupting the region's electoral landscape. Let's walk through each one of those. On demographics, what is shifting there and how does it affect the political climate for democracy and participation? Sure. There's, there's two parts to the demographic question. First, uh, the continent is 1.3 billion people. That's going to double in 2050. Um, and it's a particularly youthful population, right? The average age on sub-Saharan Africa is about 19. 
So we're seeing a lot more young people getting involved in politics now voting. In fact, Nigeria increased its voter rolls about by 15 million within four years because of the population growth, particularly Nigeria. So was that solely uh, a function of population growth or were there efforts by the government and civil society to draw people into voting? There was there was a little bit of that, but it's not rock the vote, right? right. I mean, it's it was right. it was really a function right. of of just growth rates. Got it. Um, so large youthful population, and the second part of the demographics is the urbanization. The continent is about thirty percent urban now. It's going to be fifty percent urban by twenty thirty. And urban voters are very different voters, uh, very different political activists and um, interlocutors than a rural voter. And I think that is really critical as we talk about what's changing. It would seem that. Those two factors, the urbanization to some degree, but certainly just the the demographics, are driving one of the things that's most interesting in your report, talking about the rise of young candidates for office across sub-Saharan Africa, some of whom are actually winning. Talk through that a little bit, this almost generational shift in African leadership. Yeah, we tend to focus on um, the the octogenarians and the septuagenarians, which there are a lot still, right? Um, but what's fascinating to me is that the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, is 42. When you look at Southern Africa, the main opposition leaders in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Namibia, in Botswana, in Lesotho are all thir- in their 30s and 40s. So at the same time where we see the sort of the top crust of leadership still ossified, still in those 70, 80-year-olds, we're seeing coming up through the ranks these younger, this younger generation. I think it's really an interesting and under-talked about uh, development. And in general, I know there are differences across countries, but in general, are you seeing that these youthful candidates are essentially pulling a youthful block together? Yes and no. You know, I think that the... The challenges are that uh, the incumbency still has tremendous advantages. So you've got these young uh, insurgent candidates, but they're you know still limited in their ability to compete because you know everything sort of tilts towards the incumbents. But we saw in Zimbabwe, for example, during the 2018 election, that um, Nelson Chamisa really brought out the people to both the rallies and then a huge turnout rate, 80%, which was pretty remarkable given the sort of cynicism about elections in Zimbabwe over the last couple of decades. Right. And I've noticed that we've had some opposition success in sub-Saharan Africa. I think you cited 13 opposition parties defeating incumbents or incumbent parties in the last three and a half, four years. I would assume that is at least correlated with this rise of youthful leadership. Yeah, it's partly about the rise of youthful leadership. It's just it's also about the fact that there has been a disruption to the political landscape. And what the story of African democracy is that in the 1990s we see this boom of dem- democracies after, you know, years of one-party states and and then it sort of hits a plateau and then over the last couple of years it sort of shifted downward. And so my view is that in that period Everyone kind of figured out how the game was played. The autocrats figured out how to do enough, have elections, but stay in power. And now that's been disrupted. So yes, 13 opposition leaders have defeated incumbent or incumbent parties. But even more remarkable, there's been 25 turnovers of power since 2015. And and peaceful ones. And peaceful ones. And, you know, despite us talking about the third wave of democratization in Africa and globally, 25 is in three and a half years is more than even in that period in the 1990s, which included a couple of revolutions and rebellions. So it's, it's a really remarkable moment that I think people haven't really got their heads around yet. At the same time, we've seen a second factor playing in, and this is the second development you cite in your report, which is technology. What's happening there? It's a double-edged sword. 
So for opposition, they can mobilize better. They can protest more effectively. There was, you know, almost 4,000 protests in 2018 across the continent. They can use WhatsApp. They can, you know, they can try to get their messages out. Candidates are using Twitter to campaign. At the same time, governments are using it for coercive measures. We've seen 18 internet shutdowns just in 2018 alone. We are seeing these governments contract with Chinese and Israeli firms so that they can uh, use sort of online repression. You sort of this, there's this interesting software called Pegasus. It's an Israeli software. And if you click on a link on your phone or on your computer, you immediately are giving control over your, your electronic you know, devices to the government. They found that in, in Rwanda. They found that in Uganda. They found that in Togo. And was that an issue for the opposition? Did they make any electoral gains because of that? Um, on on the Pegasus or on some of this internet, um, the way the government is using it, I don't think we can sort of identify whether or not that was the reason why they were unsuccessful. But I think it's part of the toolkit that they've been using. Mm-hmm. On the internet shutdowns, you mentioned that. Is that for hours, days, weeks? In Cameroon, in Chad, it's been 300 days. Wow. In Cameroon, it's been on and off for two years. Mm-hmm. So a significant amount of time. It's not just for the final day of a campaign. No. This is a longer-term effort in some of these countries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We've also got some geostrategic changes going on. Lead us through some of the main things you're seeing and how the geopolitics of Africa now vary from what you would have said, say, a decade ago. Well, a decade ago at the end of the Cold War, you know, there was one single view about democracy, right, globally. Um, we we pushed for it. The Iffies pushed for it. The Brits, the French, etc. Um, and you know the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration prioritized democratization. It was a key effort. But with the rise of populism, there's been a walking away on some of these issues. Um, you know what's interesting is Africa still has a huge demand for democratization and democracy about seventy percent. Where there's a global recession elsewhere, Brexit is kind of keeping UK kind of out of this game a little bit. So the continent's on its own, which means that um, there isn't anyone to reinforce democratic movements right now. And so some of the big successes you're seeing is because Africans are doing it. But there have been other times in the history of the continent, particularly the last decade, where partnership with an international player has been really important to keep them, you know, keep those countries on the right trajectory. And you talk about international players and you mention countries. But what about some of the NGOs and some of the organizations? Are they are they filling in some of that space to work yeah. with Africans? No, I think that's a great point, David. I, there are some international NGOs, IOs that are are doing great work. Um, I'm I'm particularly pleased with this one group called uh, Africa Check. It's it's actually an African NGO, um, but they are helping to check fake news. They will um, monitor a debate. They did this in Kenya in, in 2017. And they'll say, well, did candidate Ruto or candidate Kenyatta, were they accurate? You know, some same with our Pinocchios, right? They were doing this. They're doing the same thing. Well, it's possible we could adapt Africa Check to the United States and get, get some of the return on the investment we've made in democratization right, in exactly. Africa. Um, let's drill down. You have just been in Nigeria to look in depth at the election there and see firsthand what's going on. How are these dynamics and other factors playing out specifically in Nigeria? Nigeria this month had its uh, sixth election since the transition to civilian rule in 1999. This was a 
contest between two very flawed candidates. President Buhari, who was a former military dictator who was elected in 2015, he had defeated an incumbent. And let me stop you there. In 2015, the election in which Buhari won, generally perceived as fair or generally perceived as flawed? Free and fair. Mm -hmm. Best election Nigeria's had um, since its return to democracy. So they're building on something from that election when this one began and and you found yourself there looking at it. Yes. And uh, um, so Buhari versus Atiku Bubakar, a former vice president uh, who uh, is is known as a sort of uh, a corrupt but very effective politician. And as you said, David, 2015 was this high watermark. And the hope was that they could build on this. The reality was they didn't. Mm. Um, this was a, a step backwards for them. And for a lot of different reasons, they tried to incorporate technology. It was problematic. I watched a lot of people put their thumbs on a smart card reader and they couldn't read it. The intention was that those results were going to be transmitted electronically, but they didn't have the legislation to get that approved. So that didn't happen. Um, there were some shenanigans where the Electoral Commission claimed. You know, there hasn't been any contrary inf- information to this, but claimed that they needed to delay it. So they delayed the election five hours before it started, which meant that Nigerians who had you know, traveled across the continent to get to their polling units couldn't do it. And so this was the lowest turnout Nigeria's had uh, since 1999. There was about 30 percent turnout in this election in places like Lagos, the sort of the commercial, vibrant hub of, of, of Nigeria was in like 27%, even less. Were these flaws systematically tied to corruption? You use the word shenanigans, which can be interpreted yeah, as extreme right, right, shenanigans right. or almost just coincidence. To what extent was Buhari and his supporter, to what, to what extent was Buhari pushing some of these things, delaying the election, disrupting turnout in order to have his people come out, but not others? There's a pretty fair amount of cynicism that it was delayed because it would suppress uh, the opposition's voters. Now, there's currently a court case ongoing, so we'll see where where that leads. But that is the perception in Nigeria that it was delayed. There is was more enthusiasm for Buhari amongst Buhari supporters than there were enthusiasm for Atiku supporters. In fact, I would argue many Atiku supporters were voting against Buhari, not for Atiku. So the delay helped suppress that turnout. Some of this, I think, is just technical problems. In Nigeria, elections tend to have technical problems. They get better in the cycle, but that first one had some significant issues with it. And whether it's Buhari or people around him, you know, there was a couple of incidences that were, you know, sort of black marks on an election, but not the worst. You know, there was a problem for the elections that I observed. So there's the presidential on the February 23rd, and then I went out for the March 9th gubernatorial elections. David, I think the gubernatorial elections matter more to Nigerians than the presidential. Why is that? Because it's about your how your state is governed. It's it's about um, and the, the federal local... system in Nigeria does give healthy amounts of power yeah. to the states. Yeah, absolutely. Thirty six states, uh, and and in fact, this nineteen seventy nine constitution and the nineteen ninety eight constitution are based on ours. So they have a House of Reps, they have a Senate. They have a federal system. So governorships really matter. And so I wanted to go out to there. But I think there was so much fatigue with the presidential election and the delays. The turnout was less. And there was a lot more uh, violence around the elections that I observed. So the observer missions view IRI and NDI, which I was a part of, was that technically it was a better election than the presidential. But in terms of the interference by political parties and the militarization in certain places was very problematic. Right. Two follow-ups there. On the presidential election. You mentioned a court case. What are the prospects for the Nigerian legal system to handle 
a challenge to a presidential election? Most presidential elections in Nigeria have been challenged before, not the 2015 election. But when I lived in Nigeria in 2007, they challenged that court case Buhari did because he was the opposition candidate. It took two years uh, to wind its way through the courts. So the president at that time had been serving you know, half of his term by the time this rule came by. So I would rate the chances of a turnover pretty slim. Although I want to talk about some of the more regional trends. And we just saw the Kenyan Supreme Court overturn an election and force Kenya to do a rerun. So the Nigerian courts are uneven. I, they tend to be fairly pragmatic. And I think they make the best decisions for the country's sort of trajectory. Civil cases are a different story, lots of corruption problems, but the courts can be fair. The unfortunate part is that Buhari fired the chief justice recently, and so there's... Um, that puts a wrench in it. That puts a wrench in it, exactly. Mm -hmm. Let's take that down to the state level. Yeah. You mentioned some irregularities, some violence at the state level. Uh, as of the time we're recording, some of these are unresolved. What is the role of the court system for the state level? Same thing. They're going to be opposition candidates will go to the courts. In fact, there was 29 state elections, not 36. And the reason why there was not 36 is because in previous years, courts have overturned seven elections. And so there are seven off-cycle elections right now. So we have six inconclusive elections and one suspended election. They will all happen in two weeks. If the incumbent has an advantage in elections during the you know, regular cycle, their advantage deepens. It becomes more asymmetric as we move to these off cycles. So I think this is really important to monitor these elections. These are not small, insignificant states. This is Kano and Sokoto, the heartlands, the intellectual capitals of the north. This is oil-rich river state. This is a couple states in the middle belt where we're seeing the herder-farmer violence. So they really matter. But there was you know, a smaller delegation of observers in the gubernatorial. There will be a smaller, if any, international observers in the next one the turnout will probably be lower. And so these key elections, there's going to be less and less people watching, this, watching them, participating in them. And so again, the opportunity for the incumbent to win is high. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. 
The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. We tend to look at an election in Africa and look for trends and implications for other elections in Africa. That is, we see that Sub-Saharan Africa has overlap in terms of its election policies, in terms of its election implications. Do Africans see that? Do other countries that will be having elections coming up soon look at Nigeria and try to learn from the experience there? It depends. In 2015, because that was such a huge deal for the incumbent to be defeated, that had ripple effects across the continent. I mean, Ghanaians and others were sort of, you know, enamored with it and talking about it. In cases in the Z in Gambia, where the opposition defeated an autocrat, almost never happens. That also ripple effects. But I would argue that in general, you see 
cross pollination within within uh, language blocks or within regions. Mm-hmm. So Anglophones may pay more attention to Anglophone countries or right. West Africans, West Africans. But it has to be a pretty significant event for it to have continental wide uh, contagion effect. Understood. Almost two dozen countries are having general elections, presidential or general elections, during 2018 and 2019 in sub-Saharan Africa. Among the key countries with elections coming up this year include South Africa. What do you expect to see there? South Africa is key country in sub-Saharan Africa. It is the one with the most global presence, probably. Uh, they're currently on the Security Council. They're a strong voice in the G20 and the G77. And the last administration under Jacob Zuma was just riddled with corruption, you know, cozying up to the Russians and the Chinese. And ultimately, interestingly, the ANC, the ruling party, the party of Mandela, said that he had to leave, that he was actually hurting their, their reputation and he was hurting their electoral prospects. So once the new party chair was named, the new party president, Sarah Ramaphosa, former business person, labor negotiator, and became deputy president. Well, he was deputy president, but he became um, the party leader, and then they removed Zuma. So now Ramaphosa is going to be facing off against a party to the left and a party to the right. And he's got a sort of an unwieldy coalition. Um, He's trying to be manage his left flank, his left flank, which is talking about land expropriation without compensation. I think ultimately Ramaphosa and the ANC will win, but he's got a terrific task ahead of him. How does he work with this party that is a really big uh, umbrella, a really big tent? How does he address the issues still unresolved about from apartheid, about you know, redistribution of wealth and making sure you're reversing some of the, the years of racial demonstration? And how does he revive this economy that is you know, really just moving at 1%, 2% uh, over the last couple of years? So if I hear you right, the election... Won't be easy, but the ANC is likely to win, but governing will be a lot harder. Yeah, right. Absolutely. If I recall correctly, you're also anticipating a crucial election in Ethiopia next year. How has the political ground there shifted, and what does it say about 2020 and U.S. interests going forward? Probably the most transformative developments are happening in the Horn of Africa and largely around Ethiopia. In 2015, 16, 15, 15, 16, and 17, the country looked like it was teetering. There was two years of protest. And the the prime minister at the time, Hallie Miriam, said he was going to step down. And they pointed this ethnic Oromo, former military guy named uh, Abiy Ahmed, who I mentioned, who was 41 then, 42 now. And Abiy has just challenged everything that this state is about, you know, it used to be sort of state-led centralization. He's trying to open it up, the markets up. Um, the ruling party does leadership by consensus, and he's certainly becoming sort of the unipolar decision maker. The state has always been at war with Eritrea, or sorry, they had a war with Eritrea, and they've been in this sort of no peace, no war scenario for a very long time. He's extended the olive branch. And on democracy and on elections, he brought in a dissident to be the head of the Electoral Commission. He has unbanned a bunch of parties that were um, had taken up arms. And he's claiming that he's going to have a free and fair election. Those which, are all the right things to yes. say and to do. Is it resonating with the Ethiopian people? I mean, it's almost resonating too much. I mean, 
Abi is like a, a messianic figure in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Abi mania, as they call it, is sort of, it's incredible. And the reason why I say too much is because he's got some really hard tasks ahead of him. And, and my view is take it slow, be methodical, follow through, focus on the economic development, get this right. But I think that there's just so much buzz in Ethiopia right now about what Abi is doing, because as I said, he's sort of put this party, you know, flipped it upside down. And this and, is one where U.S. policy matters a lot because of the reinforcement for what he's he's doing well, yep. but also being wary of, in a sense, pushing him too hard, and he gets ahead of himself and then can't live up to expectations. How is U.S. policy working both in, in Ethiopia politically, but across the Horn of Africa, building on some of these trends you've talked about so far? The U.S. position in Ethiopia has, I think, been in a, a careful but supportive role. Um, we were supportive of the Eritrean Ethiopia rapprochement. I think we've been supportive of Abiy. But my sense is that the, gover- that the embassy and the U.S. government understand that Abiy has to lead this. And um, it's not a, it's an Ethiopian process, not a U.S. process. So I, I think it's actually been the right amount of, of of support. And I think that for the U.S. government, 2020, uh, Ethiopia will be the main show for them because this is a key security partner for us. This is a population of 80 to 100 million people. They are stitching together the continent uh, through Ethiopian airlines. You know, mm-hmm. I know people are talking about the tragic crash, mm-hmm. um, but I, I actually want to make sure people understand that that's a great airline that is incredibly important for the continent. You can get anywhere from Addis. It's also the head of the African Union is based there. So, mm-hmm. so much that we care about is, is is in Ethiopia. And that makes the election crucial. And the role of U.S. and international election monitoring will be closely looked at itself. Why does the traditional U.S. approach towards elections make less sense now? What do you recommend as a different mindset towards U.S. engagement based on the research you did in the CSIS report? Yeah, we've sort of been doing the same thing on election monitoring for a long time. As Stephen Chan of uh, SOAS has said, that we're decades out of, out of date. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about it is election monitoring is decentralized but rigging and, and chicanery is centralized. Hmm. So I was out in the field observing this election in Adamawa State. Um, it was really, David, a very cool experience. It was a young woman. She was you know, probably 22, running a majority female polling team. Uh, and it was great and transparent. I mean, there was no issues. But that's the only part that I observed. And then those ballots moved to the next spot. And they move to the next spot, and they move to the next spot. And so our eyeballs on these things become difficult unless you're doing a PVT, a parallel vote tabulation. That's very helpful. So I think we, one, have to think about how do we have a monitoring process that can follow the ballots through all the way into collation and then declaration. I think that we have to be much better on our game on technology. Yes, the smart card readers didn't work in Nigeria. They worked. You just couldn't get your thumbprint working. But more and more, we're going to go to election, uh, sorry, technological elections. And we need to have people who know ICT as part of our teams. There was implications or there was a suggestion that the Kenyan election, there was some perhaps some ICT, some tech sort of hacking to it. So I think those are two of two of the big issues that we need to think about. And then we need to think about our partners, because what happens now is um, we may say a statement, uh, but maybe the African Union or the Commonwealth is on a different place or the domestic observers are on a different place. And so we have to think about coordinating with that broader community. And I, and I think bringing in more of our own interagency and our own government, I think 
if you want to talk about where Africa policy is being led by right now, it's the Hill. And uh, Zimbabwe is a great example. We sent five senators went to Zimbabwe ahead of time. They did a hearing afterwards. So how do we get the Hill involved in some of these elections in partnership with the executive branch? Uh, I think there's, you know, as I say in the paper, we can we need to rethink our investments, our partnerships and interventions. Absolutely. There's always tension, Judd, over what to do when elections are beyond just imperfect, but fundamentally flawed. It sounds like sub-Saharan Africa has made progress in this regard, but there are still going to be problems with elections. What principles, what practical actions do you recommend for U.S. policymakers dealing with these flawed elections that are likely to occur in at least some of these cases in the next couple of years? I think that we have had some success with laying out sort of the principles in which we are going to work on mm-hmm. and then being comfortable with provide, you know, imposing sanctions when elections don't go well. I think that we could be doing a better job with enlisting the private sector to help. The private sector is affected by bad elections as much as, mm-hmm. as the average citizen. Um, I think there are opportunities for us to work with um, a broader set of actors beyond just the Electoral Commission and political parties, but the courts, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about in Nigeria, they right. turned over some of those gubernatorial elections. So can we do kind of more training with courts so they can help with electoral processing? One of the key um, recommendations from the IRINDI um, delegation I went with is that they have right now the Electoral Commission in Nigeria does the elections and it has to do all of these prosecutions related to offenders. And that's too much for the, there's no bandwidth for that. So I think there's a number of, of things that we can do like that so that we can sort of drive these elections um, to a better place. Let's pull out to the big picture to close. Many people, to the extent they even see African issues as matters of U.S. national security interest, have been seeing it lately through the lens of countering perceived Chinese encroachment and inroads there. There are a couple of aspects to this. One is how much do U.S. interests rely on the efforts of the AFRICOM, the the military angle, but also how much of it is based on how we look at China's strategy and tactics in Africa as they relate to U.S. interests. So if you could tackle both of those about what is China's role, how has it changed, and how is U.S. policy geared to both assess those changes and respond to them. China has a long history in sub-Saharan Africa, even before the colonial period and then in the post-colonial period. But it has obviously dramatically increased its engagement on the continent. Since 2009, it has been the leading trading partner for sub-Saharan Africa, and it is pouring massive amount of money into the continent and you know, set up their first overseas base in Djibouti. And so it is a player uh, that to be reckoned with, and the U.S. has now fixated on China. And I think there's a lot of valid reasons for doing that. I mean, I see a couple of serious risks, threats to the U.S. interest with what China's doing. But right now, it just seems like what we're talking about is we should counter everything that China does. And if you prioritize everything, you prioritize nothing. So I think we have to be clearer about the things that are problematic, whether it's, in my mind, uh, Chinese operation of ports that can impede our military access and our commercial uh, navigation, whether it is the technological, the digital footprint that China is putting down on sub-Saharan Africa, they pretty much wired the continent. And then I think it's the people-to-people relationships that the that Chinese have forged. China gives more scholarships to African students than we do. 
They get more students than the UK does. Only France beats them. So they're making this decadal play, and we are kind of flinting in and out. I, I do care about the economic investment. Some mm-hmm. of that can lead to problematic stuff, but I think that's a much more case-by-case basis. To what extent are things that, that China is doing, things related to infrastructure development, uh, not necessarily the ports and the military bases, yeah. but actual no-kidding infrastructure in these countries, some of these people-to-people investments, to what extent can the U.S. build on those instead of countering those? Yeah, I think on the infrastructure, we have an opportunity. So we should hope that one of our companies builds a railway, right? We should hope for that outcome. But if we don't get it, we want to make sure that we can put a train on those train tracks. We want to make sure we can build that next artery that goes off the train. And so that means working closer with the Africans to make sure that the deals that they make with China are good for the Africans and that aren't discriminatory towards us. I I heard a, a former U.S. official once say, infrastructure is neutral, operation is political. And so I think that that's a really interesting way to frame what China is doing is if they want to build roads and ports, good. The truth is we need to get our product into market as well and out of market. But they can't be discriminatory. Uh, They can't be laying down obligations that the Africans can't uh, manage and or can't uphold their side of the bargain. And the Africans are making bad deals too. And that's, you know, the other part of this story is that we often just, we, what we do is we pillory the Chinese, and then we treat the Africans, you know, infantilize them. But the Africans are making bad deals. So what can we do as a government to help both sides make better deals if we're not uh, competing for the particular project? How far do we push to prevent Africans from making bad deals without having, in a sense, a counter-reaction from the very people that we are, in theory, trying to help? Yeah, I think there's a ways to do it to embed these things in the African Development Bank and the World Bank, creating facilities to help with negotiations, to help you know use an uh, outside organization to do some of the engineering specs so that we know if the Chinese railway actually makes sense price by price. So there are ways that we can be directly involved in it, or we can create infrastructure resident already in national institutions so that they can use these resources to get better deals. And just, I, David, I, I always want to make sure that I say this when I talk about China and Africa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We talk about democracy like it's a system. Uh, we don't think about democracy like it's a tool. Mm-hmm. And you know who is going to be the first ones to expose Chinese malfeasance or African corruption? African journalists. And legislative oversight and courts. So if we don't want to have a conversation about why democracy is important, I think that's tragic, but fine. But we need, those are tools. Those are tools to achieve the objectives that uh, this administration and generally the U.S. government has always been standing for. A good way to close. Uh, You can follow Judd Deverman on Twitter at Jay Deverman. You can listen to him on his Africa podcast. And you can also read his report, which is The Game has changed all about African elections and U.S. interests. Judd, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Judd Devermont for coming on the podcast and talking about African elections. If you haven't done it yet, please give us a rating and review wherever you found us. And please tell your friends about the Lawfare Podcast. We're edited by Jen Pachia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.